0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Waste Books, a book club podcast brought to you by Waste Division Art Collective, and online magazine. If you like what you hear, check us out at waste-division.org. You can find more music like you just heard, uh, as well as fiction reviews, essays, uh, music videos, and other shit that might tickle your fancy. This month we read Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men. Um, and also talk about the movie and crack some jokes. Welcome to Waste Waste. Waste,
1: waste. waste. waste.
2: waste. Books! Yeah, so uh, Waste Books episode 3. Uh this is Eric out in Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, enjoying the sunshine for the first time in a couple weeks.
0: And this is Phil in Billings, Montana.
3: This is uh Cooper out in out in California right now, uh also enjoying the sunshine after a pretty pretty uh windy and rainy couple days.
1: Uh this is Jordan in Brooklyn, New York, just coming back from uh, a tour for 7 days and the southern southern part of the united states
3: you don't look a day over a six day tour
1: <laughs> means a lot coop
4: this is daniel coming at you live from bangkok yes i'm i'm enjoying asian beer and the fruits of the east uh, yes yes the things the are low, good things the are low good. hanging
5: fruits of the east <laughs> oh no all, all kinds of
4: fruit,
5: fruit of all levels <laughs> i fucking club to the top sometimes with a fucker right.
4: <laughs> gotta, gotta have a range diversify yeah, yeah. This, is ex-
2: this is exciting to have dan with us for uh his first podcast
3: yeah you've read you've read the first two books too right and we're gonna be talking about all three of them here on today on this podcast oh great <laughs> wonderful <laughs> Yeah, that was the deal, do, right? An extravaganza of conversation. But no, today we're talking about, today we're talking about "No country for Old Man by Cormac McCarthy. And I'm really excited about this. This was like my second time reading it, and it was better, I feel like it's just going to get better and better the more I read it.
5: Yeah.
2: Yes. Yes, this this was was my second time as well. My second time as well.
4: Yeah, I felt I felt much better about it this time. I don't know if I'm just a better human being or a better reader, but uh, this time was better. That's all I can really say. This time was Probably better. neither.
5: <laughs>
4: yeah, it's all, yeah just, I, uh, I agree. it's all just an illusion. I,
2: yeah, I was going to say, I also uh, liked it better the second time as well. Maybe just maturity in general about these kind of themes. And like... Uh, Looking into some uh, literature about it, you know, kind of the philosophical themes after being exposed to more of those kind of ideas from, you know, you guys being philosophy majors and whatnot, um, Dan and Phil specifically. Uh, I think it was, yeah, interesting uh, to go back into it at an older age. What did you think, Jordan, for being your first time?
1: Oh, I thought it was great. I thought it was oddly similar to the movie. Um, and respectful in a lot of respect, in a lot of regards, uh, it was fantastic. It was really good to see something that was so action heavy yet. So scholarly at the same time, um, right. but incredibly accessible. Uh, it's incredibly entertaining and like, yeah. uh, I can, I can totally see someone in high school reading this and, and very sincerely liking it. That might, that mm-hmm. might not be a honored student in English.
2: Oh. Right
4: the pace was ridiculous like it just flies by
3: yeah
2: i i so that's that was intentional right totally yeah i think it had to be one of the descriptions of it in some of like reviews you read is like a, a made for movie script almost and it totally feels like that sometimes when you're going through it's like action 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 dialogue 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 you know
3: Every few pages, we're changing scenes. Like every few pages, we're following another character, so you never really get used to a voice before you have to move on to another right, uh, another uh, scene, another setting, another person, which just like keeps you driving forward.
2: Yeah. Oh, first of all, maybe someone want to give a brief summary of the book, like we usually do. Uh, I'll take I'll take
3: this one. Okay, I'm pretty cool. comfortable with it. Um. The book begins with Llewellyn Moss, who will, in a way, be, be our main character as he makes a, makes a discovery of a drug deal gone bad, finds a, a bundle of cash, decides right then and there to take it, and that sort of determines the rest of his life and really the life of his loved ones around him. We follow him as he is trying to outrun whoever is following him. In this case, a couple Mexican drug dealers and the Anton Sugar sort of the book's protag antagonist um i'm still here a psychopathic killer and um and then there's sheriff bell who's sort of the watchdog of the county as he has to watch his own events unfold and and take a look a second look at himself his life in his country um and it all sort of comes together in uh not good ways for really anybody except for anton sugar should i spoil it i mean is there should i when they all die
2: pretty much i mean we all die Everybody dies. Everybody fucking dies.
3: And the it's the entire book is sort of about a lack of choice in our life. You know, Anton Sugar is the one who continues to pound that home, which is always funny because he's the one making the decision to kill all of these people. But uh, like he says, all the or at least he says two times, like him and the coin got there the same way. Mm-hmm. No right. Real choice so, there, so
4: there's a big thing about yeah, chance, chance and fate yep there, there was also a big theme of like uh something new superseding the old like sheriff Bill yeah, right. was always talking about the, the old timers and like there's a death of god right. feel i know uh, in the podcast the uh, uh, partially examined life podcast they really nail that home
2: yeah and there's a couple times the characters even reference a uh, death of god as well or s- something similar to that
4: well and it's a very not subtle theme like in the book when you look at it that way like it's pretty it's pretty obvious
3: right right right. I don't know if this book deals in subtlety I think it's I think even the violence and and the concepts and the ideas of the book Cormac McCarthy intentionally just kind of put that right on front street he's like nope this is
5: right right
4: yeah that's not and yeah I didn't mean to say that's like a weakness of it in any way like it's a strength Mm -hmm. you know that's why the made-for-movie element of it like definitely we should talk a little bit we should talk a little bit about the prose itself because uh I found him mm. super interesting. Uh he yeah. writes Yeah. It's like quite minimalist, not if not in content, yeah. certainly in form. Um there's like mm-hmm. no quotations at all. He just straight up doesn't use them. Right. Um really iffy, iffy on punctuation for sure. Um and there's a lot of um a lot of like uh colloquial talk too like just what can I do you for
2: yeah. Right, mm-hmm. and he even spells the, the words in the, like, dialect, kind of in the vein of Mark Twain, you know.
5: mm mm-hmm.
2: uh, Jor- Jordan, was this your first time reading McCarthy in general?
1: Yeah, this was my first time reading McCarthy in general.
2: Uh, uh, what, what did you think about the, like, non-quotation Mark part of it? Because that kind of took me a minute when I first read him to get used to and jumping back and forth between perspectives with kind of no, you know, designation
1: well luckily it's it's straightforward enough where it it isn't a hindrance at all i after i finished this i tried reading his first novel the orchard keeper and i'm about 20 pages from finishing it and it's it does the same thing but it's 10 times more difficult to read it's it's like william faulkner on steroids and there's no quotations and i think oh fun yeah it's it's very difficult um uh but i didn't have a problem with it i really like it i I know that James Joyce said about quote marks that it looks just terrible to have, like, these little scribbles all over a page, and it he would rather have hyphens, <laughs> but I guess McCarthy just opted for really Nothing. lean, yeah, lean minimalism.
3: I don't think it quite mattered, because they were... Oftentimes, characters are saying the exact same thing to each other. It right. was this sort of, like, back and forth, but no... Ideas were being conveyed, but at, at the end of it, I don't think it really mattered who was
2: talking to who. Everything was pretty much being said the same way to one another. Totally. And, like, even with responses like, yes, like, he would even put a, a full line for just a response that said yes or yeah. Right. Like, what I'm thinking of
3: example of that, I'm thinking when the deputy's talking to Sheriff Bell, and there's that big scene where he's like, do you think this is a mess? Is Sheriff Bell's response like, No, but it'll do till another one gets here. Like, I, you know, like that's, you, you don't really need to have context as who's talking. It's just going to be, it's just kind of, it's just, I don't know, musically rhythmic throughout the book.
5: Yes.
4: Yes. Very, very rhythmic. Um, I felt the cadence Mm -hmm. of the prose was, um, he used, there were times when he would use the same, uh, words, like, like just like a couple words, like over and over. And it felt almost poetic like that. Um. So, like, for instance, when Moss finds the money, he uses the phrase studying the low hills yeah. a lot, like, over and over. Like, he'll talk about Moss surveying surveying the bloodshed oh. and surveying the, uh, yeah, everything. And then it'll be like, he studied the low hills for a minute.
0: Mm-hmm. When he looks at the dead guy, it's, he says his dead stare looks like he's studying something small
2: in the dirt. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. That's a that's yeah. that's something about McCarthy as well as I think uh he is very his prose is also really strong in landscape descriptions and uh de- like descriptions of scenes. He's like uh he gets he's very minimalist like we were talking with maybe action and dialogue but with his like descriptions of setting and place like they're super sprawling and like very detailed. Like when you first me oh thanks guys Okay, yeah, so this is, like, when he's first surveying, like, for an antelope. It says, uh, he lowered the binoculars and sat studying the land. Far to the south, the raw mountains of Mexico, the breaks of the river. To the west, the baked terracotta terrain of the running borderlands. You know, stuff like that. Uh, he has, like, it's sprinkled throughout whenever, like, the characters break from, like, the action or dialogue and they, like, survey the land. It's very detailed descriptions, which I really... In
1: a way, I actually really disagree. Okay, uh, I think Ooh. that at that point at the beginning, <laughs> there is a lot of description. But after reading the Orchard Keeper, a lot of it, it's super descriptive. It, half of that book is about describing the uh, forest that it's set in, and this one seems to exist in a void. And you kind of have a feeling of the landscape, but he never actually describes it. I mean, you you show me one part in the entire novel where he describes the landscape after that part, and he never does. He never describes. What kind no, of it's boxes. all
2: motel rooms.
1: Yeah, and I know that this is something that they talk about in the Partially Examined Life podcast, but I think it's important for any listeners on this podcast to know that... Here,
2: I have another one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 Fuck
2: you, J-Bone. <laughs> uh, the raw rock mountains shadowed in the late sun, and to the east the shimmering abysca of the desert plains under a sky where rain curtains hung dart as suit all along the quadrant. That's a few. That's like you know, twenty pages later. Okay. Well, I. But you're right. It um, is all kind of centered in the first half of the book before the action starts. Yeah. And then after that, it's kind of it is void of kind of setting except for hotels. But I I see what you're saying.
1: No, yeah, you're and you're right about that. And like and the parts where he does describe it, it's not as if he's limited in his descriptive prowess. He um he definitely is a master of that. It's just that the natural landscape or the environment doesn't really seem to exist anymore. Or you can have so many interpretations for why he would leave it out, but uh, I don't know. It just seems to exist in some kind of a wasteland. And like you could...
2: No, no, I agree. Especially once all the action starts because all of that stuff that I had underlined was like, you know, before uh, the the main motion was set off even. So it's like after this whole thing... <clears throat> after the action set off, the landscape and everything was kind of blurred. And, like, you are saying, to the characters it didn't even matter either where they were, because uh, Shigure was going to find Moss no matter where he was.
1: And, there, and I think this is my last point. There does seem to be an element of causality, where you have this sort of neutral ground that is encapsulated in naturalism. And when man perhaps acts out in some way, i.e., moss taking the suitcase of money that sets in the course the events of the novel where it kind of snowballs and you make a choice and you do a certain uh, action and then everything else rolls off of that and then the the neutrality of the landscape disappears and it becomes a series of uh basically responses to that one action and like a kind of a, a rippling out so to speak totally totally i agree with that yeah and and the environment doesn't really have a say anymore or that's not really what it's about or whatever, how you you want to interpret that. Yeah.
5: Right. I still I hate, hate you. you. That's okay.
1: Um, this book came out... <laughs> I, accept, I accept
2: your iron. Uh, uh, this book came out in 2007, was it? two 2000- thousand? No, 2005. And then the movie came out in 07. Right, right, right.
4: Um, there's something to be said, I think, about uh, doing a Western in... 2005. That doesn't come off as like too cheesy.
3: That's like his whole bag, though. Is like reinventing the modern western. Totally,
2: totally.
0: Right. Well, and th- the thing is, you could you could fail so miserably bad. Like you could oh, fuck sure. that up so easily. You might end up like Quentin Tarantino. Right, exactly. Fuck, yeah, fuck Quentin Tarantino.
2: Exactly. <laughs> Whoa. I, which one were you talking about? I don't know which movie you're talking about. I don't know which movie Shots you're talking fired. about. Shots
4: fired. Everything he's ever done except for his first movie, but that's aside from everything.
2: <laughs> Reservoir Dogs, is that the first one?
4: Yeah, I think so. At least the, one, the only one that matters is
2: God, it's good to have your fiery voice on this podcast, Dan. You are sweating, Dan. You need to settle down.
4: It is fucking a hundred degrees here right now.
3: Uh, <laughs> that guy's fired up.
2: <laughs> but I do agree with the whole reinvention of the modern western. He, uh, he does it in a very literary way too. Like he's not just like reinventing like the. He is kind of being darker with a lot of the action too. Like he kind of, you know, a lot of his stuff is pretty bleak and violent. Oh yeah, right.
3: It's it's sort of sudden and subtle violence. At least in this book, a lot of his other novels are are incredibly brutal and sort of upfront with this. There's a part that I am thinking of when Anton Sugar walks into the, I believe it's like the oil company, and he shoots the the man in the face, and it sort of just casually says his face was riddled with tiny holes and his right eye was barely visible and blood was burbling out of his throat. It just, that sort of just sits on your chest out of, out, really out of... Even though you'd expect this book to suddenly take
2: my... Doing a time. fine job there, Coop. It suddenly kind of sneaks up on you <laughs> and just... uh, It was existentialism. And uh, the idea of causality like Cooper ha- uh, or everybody has been mentioning. I think uh, one thing to mention about the book is uh, I really enjoyed the brief snippets between action of sheriff bell's like inner monologue and about his ideas on life and like kind of aging and then the whole idea of you know not being able to stop these actions and just being a uh, you know someone who has to sit and watch as everything he knows kind of has gone to hell and just a kind
4: of... couple the first couple were very strong i mean the way the book opens is a uh talking about the uh the boy that he sent to the uh, electric chair
2: right-hmm mm
4: mm-hmm. says what's the line the line is like yeah the... he says something like uh I
2: actually I have it up uh the paper
4: go ahead and read that that's really good
2: right he killed a 14 year old girl and I can tell you right now I never did have no great desire to visit with him let alone go to his execution but I done it the paper said it was a crime of passion and he told me there wasn't no passion to it He'd been dating this girl, young as she was. He was nineteen, and he told me that he had been planning to kill somebody for about as long as he could remember. Said that if they turned him out, he'd do it again. Said he knew he was going to hell. Told me it was told me out of his own mouth. I don't know what to make of that. I surely don't. I thought I'd never seen a person like that, and it got me to wondering if maybe he was some new kind.
5: Yeah, right. Like what a hell of a way to open up a
2: book made of just theme of uh New creeping along where the old is dying, and I think in the movie they do a brilliant job with opening with that as well. I think the like the the panning over the desert landscape in the movie was a really cool way to interpret that in the book. Absolutely, and Tommy Lee Jones is a badass.
3: Plays a great sheriff Bell, but also I think what's important in that in that um, first passage is one, it sort of. It sort of gets Sheriff Bell off the hook, even though he mentions the fact that it was his testimony and evidence that put him in the chair. He sort of is playing that role, like that dual role of of having to be responsible as like the county sheriff in a lot of these cases, but himself sort of playing a passive back seat in everything he does, even in. It also brings up the idea that we are about to meet a character in this case, Anton Sugar, who Bell in that first monologue calls like the angel of destruction. We're about to meet a character who we will never see uh, remorse or any sort of human, like anything that we could connect to, anything we can identify with beforehand, which is what Sheriff Bell's getting at. You know, it talks about, I walked in front of the eyes of destruction. I hope to never ever do that again. And that's, he's referring to the scene where he goes back to the motel where Moss and the girl were shot. And he knows that He's there watching him, and that's when he decides to quit right then and there. He's like, "I, I will never be able to stand up to this, whatever this force is, and this force is something wholly new on this planet." Which one can argue about? You know,
2: that's that's Sheriff Bell's thought, but you know, uh, I had a funny experience last night at my work where there's an old man that works there who uh, just made me think of the book and make me think of those sentiments with Sheriff Bell—the whole growing old and like aging and the whole the world is going to hell kind of sentiment when you get older like there's this guy at work just complaining about like uh all these you know shootings in schools that have happened since in the last few decades you know and you know he was just it was that kind of same rhetoric of you know the world's going to hell i've never seen something like this before and i it just kind of made me chuckled myself thinking of the book uh and thinking of you know that we are tomorrow doing the podcast and stuff so
4: In that
5: opening monologue, too, about where Sheriff Bell um, quitting his job and whatnot, but uh that struck me about he was willing to die on the job, but uh
4: go through the necessary changes or to become what's necessary to the
3: fullest man, like Shigeru. Right, like he wasn't willing to lose his—he was willing to lose his life for the job, or so, or so he, he thought, thought. But he wasn't willing to lose, lose his soul. soul. Right, right,
2: right. I love it. Now we don't have it to worry like about Like my favorite. Um. But anyways, uh, I think a, a good thing to do. I don't know for our, the audience, whoever's listening to this. Uh, we were talking about existentialism. Maybe good to define it, just kind of, and then give more context to what we're talking about. What do you guys think? I have it pulled up. Sure. Is that
3: context is good.
2: Yeah. Okay, yeah. well uh, existentialism is a chiefly 20th century philosophical movement embracing divine diverse doctrines but centering on analysis of individual existence in an unfathomable universe and the plight of the individual who must assume ultimate responsibility for acts of free will without any certain knowledge of what is right or wrong or good or bad.
1: So I think what's important to stress yeah. the existential part is that I thought, okay, do people have free will? Do you think uh, the narrator here thinks that people have free will? And if you look at Sugar's interactions with individuals, it seems like people do have free will, it's just that it doesn't really matter. That that you have this choice. You have to choose uh, in something like a coin toss if it's going to be heads or tails, but you're not really going to know if what's going what's going to be the repercussions of that choice. And whether or not that's important, I think, is is a huge part of the question of our free will i do you guys interpret that any differently do you think that there is free will and that's just the end of it
3: well that 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 really brings up that that made me think of that first interaction we see with sugar in the gas station when he first pulls out the coin and the man keeps asking like well what am i like what am i wagering like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna guess the coin toss until i know what i'm wagering and I think Anton Sugar is just at a disbelief that the man would not be able to pick up on the fact that we're all wagering our lives constantly with every right. choice we make.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's a really but, good scene but, in the movie as well. That uh, they do that, like, s-
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, taught, taught that movie scene in a class once.
2: Great. That was a that's yeah. a good scene. Yeah, I don't know, I'm uncertain about it, because uh, it seems like with Moss's story, there's a similar type of, like, he comes upon this, this set of trucks, and he thinks, well, I've come, o-, you know, these trucks sitting out there in this big bloody mess, and instead of, you know, doing the what you'd think ration- a rational person would do, like call the sheriff's office before taking anything, you know, obviously he was just going down to investigate at first, he kind of... Uh, takes a stance that this is, like, set there for me. So I I don't know. I'm, like, uncertain. Is, is it him deciding that there was no free will? or I don't know.
3: I, I think, yeah, I think the the whole point of the novel, beginning with his taking of the bag, was that there was no choice in whether or not he would take the bag. And that's pretty easy to say because we were just read a whole book that's based on the fact that he did, in fact, take that bag. But I think even he recognized in those few moments that, like, there was... There was no thought.
2: This bag was here for him to take, and he came here to take it. Right. That's what I was trying to get at, is that because he was presented with this situation, there was no other choice but to take the bag.
0: Right.
1: In response to that, where a choice did come up was afterwards, when he came back and returned to the body Mm -hmm. to give him water, something that had no utilitarian purpose whatsoever. It was something like this really almost naive act of his humanity. And that was the act that ultimately would have everyone be destroyed. Right. But well, he knew different.
4: how stupid that was too, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm fixing to do something dumber in hell, yeah, yeah. but I'm going to do it anyway.
2: Yep, yep. And, well, and you know, I think McCarthy kind of blurs the lines of it because there's a point where at the end when he's with uh, Carla Jean where uh, he has her flip the coin, or, you know, call the coin. And he's like, you know, this is the best chance you got. And then at the end, when you know it ends up being the wrong one, she, he's like, You already knew what this was, you know. He kind of told her you your husband put up your life. So that it didn't matter what you called, you were still gonna die. So it was almost like like he's blurring the lines because then at that that suggests that the coin toss was inconsequential because so there even though her choice she had made a choice that was still inconsequential. How did how so. did they meet again? He uh, you mean Shigur and Carla Jean?
1: No, Carla Jean and Moss.
2: Oh, oh,
3: it was the Walmart.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah, right.
3: She had a dream that the man that she was going to marry was going to come in, and like ninety-nine days after she started the job, Llewellyn Moss walked in and asked for the sporting goods section.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if what Chigurh meant when he said that was she should have known through his character that he was willing to do this kind of thing and she was willing to be okay with that, knowing what kind of a person he was. Or is it something, this like weird unconscious latency of sort of knowing what...
2: Well, he, he there's a whole thing he says that uh, about owing debts to the dead because he made a deal with uh, Moss that if he would come give him the money directly, his wife wouldn't be involved, but if he didn't... She would become an accomplice, in that he would have to kill her as well. And Moss ended up running away and picking up that hitchhiking, you know, young girl on the way to California. And then, so after he killed Moss, he went and you know paid the debt that he promised to Moss because he has you know weird principles or whatnot.
3: Did Did he run away? I didn't think Moss was. I thought Moss was going to get Anton Sugar. Like that was the wager he said.
4: Yeah. He right. Said, right. He said, "I'm going to make a special promise Exactly out like he, of you.
2: He, he right, said exactly. That, like, but he, 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 he ended up picking that girl up and like was heading like he was gonna take her. I guess you're right. He was just gonna take her to El Paso, right, and then drop her off.
3: Yeah, I'm trying to remember the geography of like where they were going, but I don't believe. I mean, I think that passage was supposed to show that you know, because the whole time Gene he keeps talking to uh, Gene, call it Gene anymore, saying like you don't know your husband anymore. He's got a bunch of money now. You know, there's the assumed idea that money's going to change him. But I think that passage with the hitchhiker was supposed to show that like here's kind of a trashy. Young hitchhiker girl who keeps throwing her, herself at him, and he keeps saying like, "Nope, I'm married." I Which I Carla hate. Jean. They changed
2: in the movie. Like that was one of my favorite parts.
3: Yeah, and they, it,
2: and it makes it even more that. tragic because
3: yeah, it, it just because it it's like that one final nail in Moss's coffin. Because now you know the papers were writing about how he was found with a dead fifteen year old right. transient girl. Like it's just and that he was really like more final, being of
2: a father to, to her. A...
3: Oh, for sure. There was nothing really creepy about. Him. I mean, he, he used Darlene a few times, and I definitely could tell that he was flirting with her. But I
2: think he, I think he
3: kept his his Llewellyn Moss cool. But that right. was just McCarthy's final, like "fuck you" to the character that you've that the readers have <laughs> come to love. He's now gonna be looked at as just some some runaway who just was picking up young girls on the street with all his money.
1: Um, since since the movie and rereading this, I always interpreted the motel scene where. Moss is gunned down as an example talking about ethics. You don't really, you don't really see a lot of ethics here. Um if you see his character and if there is such a thing as ethics or virtue, his integrity in himself and his fidelity to um what's her name? Carla Jean. Llewellyn? What's Carla his, Jean? Carl, yeah, that's his name. Co- Carla, Jean. Carla Jean. His fidelity to Carla Jean at the motel that's where his fidelity sort of is loosened up and he has less faith, not faith, but his integrity in himself is diminished at that point And that's where he lets his guard down.
3: He's being tested.
1: He's being tested and he's being tempted. And because so much of Cormac McCarthy and his, his uh, river is about Christianity and Christian morality and about how a lot of that's de- uh, disappeared. Throughout the last hundred years, that somehow that has a relationship to his um, his fall at the motel, and that if he would have kept that up, he would have kept surviving, and that he had gone through so many impossibly difficult situations but had survived them. I like. Uh, I guess my. I like I like that. Yeah, I don't know if there's a relationship there. I think there is. I don't know if and if someone doesn't have anything to say about that, maybe about ethics or morality in the. In the in or in no country for old men.
3: I think I think you totally hit on that.
0: Well, so you're just saying like that it was when Moss sort of slacked off in his up- upholding of sort of those Christian morals that he paid for it in his death?
1: That, mm, I guess.
0: Or is that too crude or
1: I guess the Christian part, because I'm wary to say Christian morals, but I suppose it, it is a Christian moral. But sort of his loss of integrity, uh, which I think would be a, a more of a proper, even like a New Chain moral, to like have faith in one's self. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's where he lost. He he, lo- he he did, he did, did that by like
0: opening himself up to a relationship with the girl, or
1: or what he did was grounded in his love for. For Carla Jean and then that it's sort of it began to negate itself like I, I like to see like I mean some kind of logical equation here where he's took the money so he could be happy with Carla Jean but then he began to be corrupted somehow by the case or whatever the case embodied and then that sort of started to devour itself and went against the intention of why he sold the money in the first place and then that's where it like Okay, Okay. Oh. this no longer is sustainable. This can't really hold itself up. Now it's kind of collapsed. Uh, I, that's, a, yeah.
0: that's a really important question I have. Is that, is this about money? Yes. Like, like Wait, do oh. they sort of, uh? what would the word be? Transcend that motivation or through, the, do they tr- transcend that motivation through that motivation? I guess it would be one way of, of putting it or
2: um i think i don't know if it has to do with money more as much as llewellyn seemed to be kind of bored and complacent in his life and this opportunity presented itself and he kind of understood the opportunity when he was getting into it that he he might be getting into some kind of like a situation where he has to flee from people with guns and stuff but he understood when he took the bag like the implications and I don't think he cared so much about the money as just the experience because he's kind of he was just bored with his life. And as much as he did love Carla Jean, I think that those events made him, uh, I think, treasure her more possibly and realize what he had put himself in after the fact. That's my personal theory.
4: There's some really real Old Testament stuff going on and uh just oh to for sure. up, yeah just to follow up on what uh y- y'all were saying uh mm-hmm. the first one is that there's something to be said of chigur uh basically taking the place of the old testament god who was absolutely brutal as fuck in the old testament mm-hmm. um you know that, like right, there's right. stories of you know people accidentally tripping and touching the holy of holies and gods like strikes them down with lightning and he's like ah oh, you'll rue the day you mm-hmm. fuck it with i and uh <laughs> But there, there's – so Carson Wells at one point says Chigur has principles that transcend money or drugs or anything like that. And, um, and then also just the way he comports himself, uh, Chigur basically just acts like an agent of fate. And um, I think he tells yeah. Carla Jean – or maybe it's Carson Wells that says uh, if the rule you followed led you to this, then of what use was the rule?
3: And, yeah, that uh, was Tim talking to Carson Wells. yeah
4: Yeah, and and there's all the stuff about him like having to keep his word to dead people and uh he says at Mm -hmm. one point even even a non-believer might find it useful to model himself after god very useful in fact Mm -hmm. so there's a bunch of stuff like that and then just to follow up quickly on the money thing toward the very end of the novel they throw around the word mammon um like someone Mm -hmm. was like, like you know what that word and they both like decide they don't know what i think (laughs) The two people talking, they just decide they don't know what it is. They're like, oh, yeah, I don't know what that means. And uh, it's like Mm -hmm. it's a demon of wealth that is was like, you know, old popular in the Old Testament. And uh, Dante talked about him and Milton talked about him. Um, And, yeah, it's basically Mm -hmm. a demon of wealth. And toward the very end of the novel, uh, word for word, uh, McCarthy writes, we we're being bought with our own money and it ain't just the drugs. There's, uh, there's fortunes being accumulated that are we don't even know about. What do we think is going to come of all that money? And I thought that, that you find that like two pages
3: after he references Mammon directly. Right. Mm-hmm. But continuing with the Bible theme, and I think all the men in this novel who experienced a downfall did so by simply leaving their women at home. You know, I think the, the New York Times Review pointed that out saying, you know, it's, it's, it's a biblical concept of these men left left home, left their wives at home, and got themselves in a whole world of trouble. Right. Um, which is sort of a, a simpler take on, on, this, on this whole novel. But, and the women are all left at home just having to ask their men what's going on. And, and um, Sheriff Bell acknowledges that and decides to go on home to his Loretta.
5: Mm. Mm-hmm.
4: She seems like the most admirable character in the entire novel.
3: Her or Llewellyn Moss? Cause I, think, I think it's funny because even though he did take the money, and even though he did kill that older woman, um, the old woman, he's his
2: character I still feel is, is super strong, and he, he,
3: I think I, he's a, a, a character that would be worth looking up to.
2: Oh, I would just say I agree, because I, I think as much as his, the, mo- the book is about money, I was kind of mentioning maybe for Llewellyn it was less about money, and that's why I think he's admirable as well, even though he did take the money. You he was I don't I don't know I I kind of enjoyed his uh, dichotomy between like his morality and then his kind of impulsiveness and that made him interesting and likable to me.
3: And human, I think there, yes, he, there's this weird duality between him where he's he's fully human, but I think he's lost a bit of his humanity or faith in it. There, and I'm getting that from the passage in which somebody's describing when he came home from Vietnam he went to the family members of each of his fallen comrades and just would talk to them until he realized that they wanted nothing to do with him and only looked at him with contempt wishing that he was dead rather than the sons that he was going to to honor and i think right. that yeah. i don't we don't get very much after that but i would assume that takes a lot out of you and it briefly mentions how he beat up a couple of hippies who called them baby killers so he de- he definitely had a bit of a complex coming home and i still think he's dealing with that after Vietnam, and then just settling down with Norma Jean, where like he's fully human, but at the same time is is sort of right done with done with humanity, and sees the money as a escape for him and in uh, Carl sort of escape frame. Right. Yeah, I like that.
0: Well, so that brings up a big point: is war in this right? Like,
3: right. that yeah, like-
0: major character is a veteran of some kind, whether it's World War II or. Vietnam, or even earlier, they talk about World War One and
3: the Great War. Um, yeah. yeah, right. I,
0: I wonder if that's,
3: I wonder if it's a comment. I, 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 my first reading through this, I remember thinking it's a comment on war. But after reading it and sort of getting a lot of the biblical allusions, America's history was perfect to be able to set up generation after generation of soldiers, and that he's rather just talking about the effects that uh, the world has on men, and in this case, using using war as a perfect sort of backdrop. Because like we kind of we kind of get how he he probably has a few opinions Corbin McCarthy does on Vietnam and World War Two and whatnot, but it, I don't think it makes up a majority of the novel. It's rather just the idea that um, what what is this going to be coming to when we constantly send our young boys out to war?
1: Important is that there's a there's an element of degradation or, or decline, in that this novel is sort of looking for. It's like almost it's like the breath before the end. Or the like, this sort of impending apocalypse, and I think that as each war has become less and less meaningful, or the purpose of that war was less and less purposeful. I, I think in the podcast they talk about the the Second World War was like the the, the right war, like the not morally uh, ambiguous war, and then as you go farther and farther, and they don't mention Korea, but that's a, that has a little bit less uh, to do with some objective evil, and the Vietnam is even more. Um, equivocal and it gets to the point where well, what the well, what's the next we're going to be about and if this is the the milieu the of um, america no country for old men that whatever it's going to be and seeing that from the perspective of 2005 post 9 11 it could be right. something absolutely apocalyptic in scale um so i think that's mm-hmm. really important as far as like war is concerned with what's going to happen is like the possibly the end war the the third world war or something that would mm-hmm. that would wipe out humanity
2: yeah i think also oh go ahead oh i was just say also along your point with like uh how the wars are becoming less purposeful of what they actually meant in their lives as they get older uh wells brings up that he was a, a vietnam vet to moss in the mexican hospital and i think moss's response was well so was that make me your buddy
5: mm-hmm. and
2: how like you know it's like i don't Right, mm-hmm. I don't care that you fought in that war that I fought in. Like that doesn't mean that we're friends. That war doesn't really have any meaning in my life, you know. Like so.
3: But it also saved his butt when he was crossing the border and uh, the border guard. I mean, he was naked with an overcoat trying to get into America, mm-hmm. and because of the simple fact that he was a fellow veteran with the border guard, he was allowed to. You know, there was this sort of silent understanding and mutual totally. respect that said,
1: "Yeah,
2: all right, you know, keep get get this man a car."
1: Yeah, get him,
3: get
2: him to get him to help. Is it, that's like Moss is like choosing though to when to use that card because he, he. It's like when he's with Wells, he's he's saying, you know, I really don't care if you're a veteran or not. That doesn't make any difference to me, but he knows to other people it does. So maybe that's his, you know, understanding of the way that society looks at people of service and a white male, you know, trying to get back into America.
4: Um, I'd like to know your guys' right, thoughts on um on Wells as a character, because for me, the first time I read this book, I thought he was a little bitch. And, uh, <laughs> like, like, I really didn't like him at all. I thought he was, like, you know, like, some clean, clean, mean cowboy with a 10-gallon hat walking in, being like, let me fix all your problems, and then just, like, getting totally. swallowed up in the tide. And, I don't know, like, I still felt that way a little bit, but, like, I was much more sympathetic with him this time. Like, just Be-
3: Because, as... What we know about him is that he was like an ex-lieutenant colonel who served 14 years in active duty who then becomes a hired killer for this company who supplied the money for the dope Uh, deal.
2: I think that's how the
3: timeline goes.
2: But he – but I think they were – yeah, because he was in the same business as Shigur. I think they were both like obviously hitmen who had ran into each other before and that's why they had recognized each other.
3: Where, where, where Anton Sugar, he could hang, uh, Carson Wells could, could not hang. He could not, he could not kick it.
2: He ended up being dead in the end. Lots of, <laughs> lots of blood. He got
3: his fingers and face shot off. A lot, lot, of, lot, of, lot of face gone in this. Definitely lost He lost some face. Right. Dude, this book gave me a huge gun boner. Yeah, I never really had a gun boner before, but this book really got me jazzed up for just like semi-automatic and automatic weapons. I was like, oh, shit, dude, Tech Nines, bro? You got that MK-19, bro?
2: (laughs) And I love how the sheriff, like, there's that one, when they go down to the truck scenes, he, like, kneels down, and he is, like, picking up the bullets, and he can he's just, like, naming off all the different calibers and, like, knowing exactly what was shot off and whatnot. And he knows exactly what guns are missing as well, Mm. uh, just based on all the rounds out in there and all the guns that were uh, laying around. That, that so yeah like gun culture texas right
3: but i think it transcends
2: that too it just is i think this this
3: book i, don't, I was gonna say this book could have been set anywhere but it, i also know that it couldn't have obviously this is about mexican dope dealers but
1: it's also important that it's on a border as well
3: it's on yeah. a yeah
1: and the fact that, which he loves
3: Cormac mccarthy loves them borders
1: Mm-hmm. The briefcase was thrown on the border, as if it like existed in this no man or like this non point that didn't wasn't in either country. I mean, it was in the United States, but I I thought it was interesting. In the movie, they don't recover the suitcase. I don't think.
3: No, I think I think once he throws it, we don't ever see it again. Yeah. And for that matter, we we don't ever really see Llewellyn Moss again. I think in the yeah, it's recovered and yeah, and Tan Sugar has it right, or he gives it to that guy. Doesn't really show. He just comes in and kills
2: him, in the movie.
3: No, no. Remember this. The, there's the other conversation where, like, we get to see sort of Anton Sugar as a businessman, and he walks in saying, like, Yeah, I've come here basically to like, you want to hire me out? I'm pretty fucking good at what oh, I yeah.
2: do. That wasn't in the movie, though, was it? No. No. no, no. Right? Yeah, and I really like that scene because, yeah, he comes in like, I I recovered your money. Uh, don't you want to like reward me with doing more jobs and whatnot?
3: Well, I think what's important in the book where the movie made of failed in showing the la- like cuz in the movie the last of anton sugar is him walking away after the car accident and mm-hmm. the in the in the you know you're, the viewers led to believe like he's this specter who will never be stopped but in the book that is really hit home with him walking into and just like continuing as business as normal we just read a whole novel which like is this huge sort of chase and action packed adventure with him as like a central
2: character but for him it was just another fucking job and he needs to get another one right mm-hmm. he gets up and he takes the guy, his like, kid's shirt for a sling and then pays him 100 bucks to say you know like you never saw me
0: this is a little bit of a branch but um i was i was a little confused about the mexican who was taking the blame for the uh patrol car getting set on fire with the with the officer inside at the end was that did anybody pick up on I that think-
3: Oh wait, oh, I'm wait, are are talking, talking about the where? guy in the
2: Barracuda. Who who was the one who killed Moss? Oh yeah, yeah, it wasn't Shagur. It was uh, one of the other Mexicans, wasn't it? It was like the it was their hitman. Cuz ant cuz Shagur is kind of like a uh what's it called? He was like a vigilante. He was just being paid by who whoever. And it seemed like this guy who ended up killing Moss uh sent by the other group that was doing the deal with that businessman. And then that's why uh, Bell felt uneasy about it, because he's like, that doesn't make any sense, um, the way he was killed. Like, because they had drugged the girl out of the room, killed him, and Moss was able to hit him, you know, with uh, some bullets or whatnot. And so everybody just assumed it was Shigur because they said it was a Mexican man, and that's how they identified him. And then that's why Bell went back, and then he realized that, you know, their actual guy was still there, you know.
0: Hey, where's that piano coming from? Well, that's in, my, that's
3: in my house right now. Word. Fuck your Fuck piano. piano. Sorry, guys. <laughs> sorry my, sorry my, my close friends love the, the arts. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck the art, dude. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, well, I had a, the idea of uh, this as a noir. Um, I read that in that New York Times. They talked about it. They called it a Texas noir. And, you know, I think the definition of noir is like a crime drama. And we were talking about McCarthy kind of reinventing stuff. And I know Jordan, you're a big movie buff. Uh, and what did, how did you feel this represented the genre of noir, or was it like a reinvention of something like that?
1: Well, I don't really know. I don't think. I think it didn't really have enough to do with it to warrant like an explanation on, on my end. Um, I know that I always see it as a neo-western and as a reinterpretation of what a western is. And as far as noir goes, I for something to be noir it seems to have things steeped in shadow and nothing really steam- seemed steeped in shadow it seemed very sort of um uh, overexposed and maybe i'm just thinking of the movie too much but yeah it seemed the opposite hard yeah like it's all like it's all exposed like in a way it's like it, it all is very right. like, yeah. knowable and that's sort of the fucked up thing about it it's very stark it's very um so the the reality is clear.
2: Now, I know the movie doesn't lend to that. Right. And I know the movie doesn't lend to that as much. But I was wondering, does the book have a any kind of noir interpretation in it? Like, could you, is that, that's what I was kind of going off of. I,
4: I was going to, at some point, bring up the uh, the title.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
4: yeah. No Country do for Old Men is, yeah, it's a, um, it was based off a poem by Yeats uh sailing to Byzantium and uh I I mean I have the I have the poem up I could read it I mean it's really short yeah do it Uh, that'd be fantastic thank you all right all right I I, I'm I'm uh I'm kind of springing off uh, here this is uh I'll probably fuck it up but uh, all right that is no country for old men the young in one another's arms birds in the trees those dying generations at their song the salmon falls the maple crowded seas fish flesh or fowl commend all summer long whatever is begotten, born and dies caught in that sensual music all neglect monuments of unaging intellect. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick unless so claps its hands and sing and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. Nor is there singing school but studying monuments of its own magnificence. And therefore I have sailed the season come to the holy city of Byzantium. O sages standing in God's holy fire, as in the gold mosaic of a wall, come from the holy fire, pernin a gyre, and be the singing masters of my soul. Consume my heart away, sick with desire, and fastened to a dying animal. It knows not what it is, and gather me into the artifice of eternity. Once out of nature I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing, but such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make of hammered gold and gold enamelling, to keep a drowsy emperor awake, or set upon a golden bough to sing, to lords and ladies of Byzantium, of what is past or passing or to come. And
3: that's the poem. Nice. uh, (laughs) Thank you, Dan, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, well,
4: I mean, well, just something interesting, I was reading about the themes of the poem and whatever, and uh, it was saying that the author is an old man going somewhere. To learn how to exist outside of time. And I thought McCarthy was kind of like making a sick joke out of that a little bit, maybe. Uh,
2: I can see that totally with Sheriff Bell, especially trying like his whole uh, his whole inner monologue The like uh, italicized text seems to exist outside of the time of the novel in a sense where he's just commenting on stuff. So I kind of see where you're getting at.
4: Well, and then there's a whole thing about our temporal existence is like exactly what defines us. Like like all your decisions have led to this moment. You have to embrace that because if you wouldn't, you'd be like denying yourself or some shit.
3: Right. I have that. Actually, I was about to read that passage. I love that one. Do it. Do it. It's 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 him talking to Norma uh, or I keep calling call her Norma Jean the Carla Jean. And he sort of I'll just read it and then we can talk about it. Cause I think I think it sort of encapsulates this whole novel. Uh, He shook his head. You're asking that I make myself vulnerable and that I can never do. I have only one way to live. It doesn't allow for special cases. A coin toss, perhaps. In this case, to small purpose. Most people don't believe that there can be such a person. You can see what a problem that must be for them. How to prevail over that which you refuse to acknowledge the existence of. Do you understand? When I came into your life, your life was over. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. This is the end. You can say that things could have turned out differently, that they could have been some other way, What does that mean? They are not some other way. They are this way. You're asking that I second say the world. Loved it.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. I think you're right, and that kind of whole uh kind of touches on the whole idea of choice that we were going uh, you know on about earlier. Encapsulates that whole idea of is there choice? Phil,
3: do we have anything from the capitalist corner? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I do want to hear your Matter thoughts.
2: Fact, on it. Been... Really... <laughs> yeah, Phil,
0: talk <laughs> some more.
2: God damn it!
1: Um.
0: This, is, this kind of reminds me. This seems to have like a Gnostic uh, aspect to it, and that's just kind of a hobby horse I have. So I might just be looking for it. But the idea that the world <laughs> is like—it's sort of related to the world as war, but uh the world is a place that crushes uh nice things and mm-hmm. like sometimes you can interpret that as like capitalism like with this it'd be really easy to say this is all about money and <laughs> everything's about money and then that quote at the end when he talks about like fortunes being accumulated that we don't even know about like that lends itself a lot to that sort of reading of it but I think it like I could be and I wanna be careful about just like sort of brutally putting it in those terms. Like it that seems a little too easy. Um so I'm not sure what I have to say about it other than that. I mean, do you guys have thoughts on that or I think I, I thought think, that I was think, very well put. And-
2: yeah, no, I think there's definitely a lot of commentary on the uh, power of wealth and greed and, like, the system of, uh, you know, markets that we have set up and that kind of perpetuate crime and violence and stuff. I don't know if it it was his main theme as much as, like, you know, uh, just representing it in a realistic fashion. Semi-realistic. I mean, some of the action was crazy. But...
0: Oh, here's something... Carson Wells says he's a day trader.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> kind of funny, and it, so Is that like that's almost just ridiculous, ahead, right? Yeah,
2: right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh no, no. Oh, you're saying that he like he was trying to lay on Shigure's sentiments by saying, you know, I'm just a day trader, man. Yeah, I thought he was just being cutesy and saying that was like his.
0: No, I had the sense that like. Maybe I'm totally mistaken. But I thought Wells like had a career in the, you know, doing Shiger's line of work, like being a hitman out of the army or whatever. But mm-hmm. and then he left. Like it sounded like Shiger didn't respect him because he ended up doing like the civilian regular kind of bland life. Yeah. Um the cow, the herd life, which is something we could talk about with that uh pressurized. Cattle stun gun, but um, oh yeah, like he seemed to, to disrespect Those Wells because he had kind of turned into a cow,
2: mm-hmm. um, right? Well, yeah, because maybe that's, that's where that line Dan, do you have a disco going on in your room? Yeah, Dan, yeah this, you is my, this is my room. house party right now.
4: Oh, yeah, dude, pretty, yeah, you can see the, my floor there. Uh, sorry to interrupt, uh, that. I saw that.
2: yeah, yeah, no, it's it's lovely, it's lovely but yeah no i i really like that idea phil with the whole uh using the the cat the stun gun the cattle gun like to kill people as because they were not you know the people he was killing with it were kind of civilians themselves so he just like they weren't worth bullets
0: right yeah yo that's great
2: that's
4: great um I, i was gonna talk a little bit about the humor in here that like it's I mean, in a book as dark as this, it's probably easy to forget that it is like genuinely funny at times.
0: Mm, like, yeah,
4: there are times it's like a disturbing um, sort of way. Yeah, and in just like little tidbits, like, uh, like Moss's wife is like, "Where'd you get the pistol?" He's like, "At the getting place."
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Like, that's pretty sweet. And then there was a there was a part where the sheriff is always reprimanding his duties. Like McCarthy kind of summons this like there's a feeling of like these small town people that like have no fucking idea of like what they're dealing with in Mm anton sugar like like he says uh, the fight the first time they run into him he says uh he's like where do you leave your keys and he's like oh they're in the cruiser and he's like let's not be leaving our keys in the cruiser all right like
5: Mm -hmm.
4: just like all kinds of all kinds of little tidbits like that where it just shows how like it's not only funny but it shows how unprepared these people are
0: Mm mm-hmm right well, like, in the movie, they really played on that, I thought, with uh, Sheriff Bell and his deputy guy, who's kind of this younger guy. You know, more of a hayseed than yeah. Bell, they just kind of have some banter. Mm-hmm.
4: Like, you can hear um, him vocalize a lot of stuff that, like, people would have just thought about, like, Oh, Sheriff, we just missed him! Right, right. <laughs> so,
5: <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, uh, that's a, and one thing in the New York Times review is talking about is like that was kind of like there's some hokum stuff that's kind of hokey, and you know, like we're like you were just saying, but because the pace is so fast, it doesn't like uh over you know overdo it or doesn't feel overdone.
3: Um, I do hate to go back to this idea of fate and chance, but I think it's important. And I just remembered a a, a part in the novel that I think we've overlooked, and that's when. Uh, Carson Wells reveals to Moss that he has, in fact, killed somebody. So his he kind of has a real big horse in the race, besides just being the person that everybody's chasing after the money. And it's that old woman in the room above the hotel that she got a she got a couple buckshots to the head. But there's that part, and it was very brief. But it's where Carson Wells looks at where the I believe the bullet hit the calendar, and it was three days from that point. And uh, it's brought up again when um, Anton Sugar is in Carson Wells' room about to kill him. And he recognizes, he's like, you know, what time is it? And it's like, it was seven minutes to the next day, which is the day that he would have been killed. And Anton Sugar kills him two minutes before that day. And I'd like to get you guys' thoughts on that. The, the idea of fate and chance.
2: That part, uh, I do remember reading that part that was... uh <laughs> God damn it, Dan. <laughs> Dan is taking a fucking piss. That's what you're hearing. I'm sorry. <laughs> drinking a fucking tall boy to himself.
3: Yeah, anyway, Dan's yeah. having a little solo party in his Bangkok room. And... God, Everybody's drinking tall boys and disco taking lights pisses. going around
2: his room in Bangkok. He's calling up some, uh, uh, some entertainment. Low-hanging fruit.
5: <laughs>
2: uh, anyways yeah. yeah i do remember coop uh that part where he does look at the calendar but i didn't even think about it until uh you know the significance of like three days later they or however you know long later they meet and him saying like what time is it oh you know what time it is doesn't he say something like that to wells
3: something like that yeah there there was some back and forth but i just remember the idea that it's maybe it's Corey mccarthy's way of laughing at uh, at super, that's just superstition. In that instance, right. him seeing that and acknowledging, like, oh, that's an ominous, um, that's an ominous point that I should take note of. Whereas Anton Sugar disregards that completely and and just dis dispatches him the way that he saw fit.
2: Right, because he he understands that uh, it's what's going to happen is just going to happen on his terms at that point.
3: Right, which I guess he kind of represents sort of god or satan in this novel who does the, have
2: maybe even the angel <laughs> of death like right or raver? whatever
3: bell calls him the the ancient uh age old destru- agent of destruction mm-hmm. and he does seem to be in- invincible uh carson wells kind of brings that up saying that this man's seemingly invincible which we do get in like he gets a chink in the armor you know um a, yeah a couple of moss does hit him in the right. leg He gets shot once, which kind of sets his downfall, and I think that kind of leads to him getting in a car crash, but in Anton Sugar fashion, he continues on. He's an unstoppable force in this world.
0: You know, something that I think speaks to the sort of uh, level of of, – that this book is able to disturb the reader at is that there was a point after Sugar gets shot – he's like trying to fix himself up yeah uh, and he drinks like two glasses of water he's he's at the hotel and he's about to just like get in bed and rest for a long time but mm-hmm. before that he just like drinks it says he drinks two glasses of water then he drank two more and there there was something about that line that was really disturbing to me and <laughs> i can explain oh, that. Really? why why do you think that is yeah well, because he's like so sort of mechanical and clinical about treating himself and getting to where he can be back on his feet um, and after this briefcase of money ASAP. Like yeah. how dedicated totally. and sort of robotic and uh, – I guess that's that's what he mentioned... represents God. Like he behaves like his will is – is really something that he can do anything with including sort of miraculously heal himself he
3: he does make a point to acknowledge that he's worked his entire life to get rid of choice doesn't he kind of mention that like he doesn't make decisions now he just acts and that's kind of what makes him different than everybody else is that he's able to rid himself of this sort of doubt and and choice and decision making he just goes and goes and goes which is why like, i love that like that's totally his fashion to be, like, he drank two cups of water,
2: period, and then he drank two he more. Drank like, that's just what happened. Well, and then the, uh, I, along those lines, too, like, with the roboticness, I think it mentions around that part, too, that he doesn't even... he like, I think he's at the hotel for five days, and it says, like, something he doesn't turn the TV on. So he doesn't re- even require entertainment or anything to satisfy his mind. No, no, it's the opposite. There. He
3: does keep no he does keep the tv on and he oh, watches oh you're it, right but, but he, he keeps it on the one the channel for five
2: days right Yeah. And just watches right, whatever right. the same comes station on
3: Where- channel
4: there was a part about him it says like he takes his meals at the cafe next door or whatever and there was something that struck me too like it, when i read it my experience was like it's weird to hear about a character this savage and robotic like you guys said or mechanical um like eating like it's
3: weird to Right.
4: Like, in lifelike terms. Like, that's just, it, it, it struck me as odd.
3: That's where I got the idea of terror from, from this man. Like, we witness all of his cruelty and unstoppable evilness, but could you imagine being in a diner and seeing someone like this? Because he has to look different. I think even, like, one of the high school kids mentions that to Sheriff Bell. He's like, he looks like anybody, and then pauses and says, but at the same time, he he doesn't look like anybody you'd ever want to mess with. So, like, that person's out there and eating in a diner in which you and your girlfriend could walk into to get a cup of coffee, and, like, that man's there, and, like, you don't even know that your life is in in balance at that moment. Like, that's who – that's what he creates. He creates this idea that anybody who comes in, across his path, their life is now in question.
2: Right. And that's terrifying,
3: terrifying to think it's of that man bad. existing.
2: Yeah, yeah, Uh, absolutely. Think about the the, thing where the dude, uh, he goes into the gas station with the older gentleman. Like, that that guy was just, you know, sitting there having a probably fine day, not much business. And, you know, Anton Chigurh shows up and he's about to stay. Right. Like a little bitch. (laughs) Like a little bitch. You know what? I wish he would have died. Fuck him. (laughs) Sorry, Dan. Um, I...
3: I do have a I do have a question there. This struck me. It didn't really struck struck me when I strike me when I first read it. But he lets the two kids live, right? Remember, I think Carson Wells says like, or even Sheriff Bell makes a note like, we're not able to find out what he looks like because everybody who crosses his path doesn't survive long enough to tell us. But when he gets hit in the hit by the car. There's two kids there, and he in fact pays them and says vocally, You don't know what I look like. That kind of seemed to me out of character, but at the same time, I think Anton Sugar is himself a character out of bounds of what would constrict other characters, and he's capable of doing whatever he feels like, and that's just who, that's just Anton Sugar then. Whatever he chooses to do becomes his character.
1: Well, I think that was the most utilitarian mode that he could do, because there was a point where he goes to the trailer park and he sees the woman and asks to get into Moss's trailer, and then someone else, he hears someone else flush the toilet, and then he leaves because he knows there's multiple people there. I think he knows that that's be too messy to kill everyone there. He could have just killed her. He only kills people when they're by right. themselves. It's almost like this weird, you could look at it in that way, because at the same time, when he shoots the person in the office building in Houston, that person's by themselves. And if there was someone else in the yeah. room, he probably wouldn't have killed them. But in the movie, they change it so that there are two people in that room. So every single time you ever see Sugar kill somebody, unless it's in a firefight, it's just one person in front of him. And I think there might have something to do with the individual confronting a demon or something that has to do with him being incredibly pragmatic and not wanting to have to worry about someone running away. So I think that he either buys someone off or he kills them.
3: I think that's the beauty of Cormac McCarthy and what he's able to do in this book and many of his books is he's able to add that biblical element of like, one man confronting a, a demon or some sort of evil force. But at the same time, the character who is the evil force is a pragmatic, realistic person who is operating within those that realm. So you can take the biblical illusion or you can simply read it as, oh, this is just a man pragmatically saying, there's witnesses, I can't kill this person. I must continue on my mission.
1: That utilitarianism... Aspect is what is evil, and that it's only an act of humanity that people die and suffer, but are not machines like Moss when he decided to bring back the water, or you know a number of uh, occasions where people's humanity is their downfall or the what makes them human and valuable.
3: Or or cowardice in the case of Sheriff Bell, right? He survives because of his his I would say cowardice, and I think he would feel the same way.
4: Yeah, absolutely. He talks about that with the World War Two. With the World War II thing about how he survived right. and left all his men to die in World War Two, and how it was probably the right thing to do, but he still felt like he was a coward because of it. And oh, uh, he, he, was-
3: he, he says that he didn't know that a man could steal his own life. You know, he says every like my entire life, I've been wishing that I could have stayed on that hill during the night. I didn't know a man could steal his own life, and I've oh. it's never been mine since that day.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that's night that's a nightmare life yeah it occurred to me that Shiger had no regrets when he could have had the most you could say and Mm -hmm. bell most regrets when he should have had the least like if you were going to put him in sort of a an old-time moral calculus it might come out that way right right
5: right
0: in this book it's like Shiger is the hero right it's sort of yeah. in the tradition of Milton or whatever where what's we should think of in some ways as the villain, like Satan, we end up thinking of as the hero because they're the most interesting and they just like – the story has to follow them.
2: Right. It's om- it's almost like Shagur uh, was kind of a moral compass where he uh, – of some sort where he kind of chose the people – like the hero in that, in like an anti hero way, where Moss ended up losing his life because he stole something, let's say, or did some like non moralistic things, where Bell ended up not losing his life from Shigur, even though they did encounter each other at the end, even though it was only, even though they didn't physically see each other. But he didn't lose his life because Shigur had nothing to, you know, had no, for some reason decided that he was worthy, not worthy of killing or his time to kill. I think what, speaking of Moss losing his life, I think
3: that was the m- most heartbreaking aspect of this entire book to me is that we don't get to see Moss's death. I'm not sure why that broke my heart so much, but they do a great job of it in the movie, and in the book they do an, an even better job where, like, that broke my heart that we don't get to see this man fall. Even though throughout the whole book you know he's going to fall, you had that little bit of hope, I I feel so cheated that I don't get to see this, like, man's last moment and i oh that that's what finally broke me in this book when i first read it in a second time i was like yeah i just want to see this man die why have you taken this from me
2: and you like, get the sheriff taking showing... this from me and you get the sheriff showing up to the uh motel the scene directly after he drinks the beer with the hitchhiker uh the young girl and then so i almost like didn't catch it the first time both times i read it I didn't. I always forgot that that was the scene describing his death. I thought they like the sheriff was rolling up on some other scene, and I had to reread it, and I was like, "Oh God, Moss is dead! Oh my God! Like that was so sudden." Like he's the old boy, because you know it says like, "Oh, there's there's
3: three of them in this accident: a Mexican, an old like a boy and a and a girl. The girl's dead, and the boy's probably dead, and the Mexican will probably live." And you're like, "Oh, this is a a random scene. Oh no, oh, wait, God, that the old boys are Moss." Old boy, why have you forsaken us? Right. <laughs>
2: and then you think the Mexican, Mexican, when they when mentioned, they mentioned a Chigur, him a Chigur, and that, you know, like, of got him. But, you know, it wasn't actually him. But it's,
3: no, it's just a Barracuda guy. Yep. The gangster who was wiretapping.
2: Yeah, right, right, yep, exactly. Um
3: I think I gotta get
2: going, guys. I gotta start with it's Dan or Coop's soon, turn. If there's anything else that we need to uh to so make sure talk about ready, but yeah, should we just wrap it up real quick? give our closing thoughts and uh recommendations, and I think we kind of covered a lot unless anybody wanted to bring up any more about the movie at all uh that's the only other thing I can think of.
4: I was just going to say, there was a differences in the movie and the book with the uh, the shootout scene at the hotel. Like, um, there was a scene, if, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot today, and I think I might be. But, um, there's a, I think in the book Moss kills the Mexicans that are in his original hotel room, because he gets the first room, and then he sees the curtains are open, and he gets the one across from it
2: in the building, right? No, yeah, but no, it's Shigur that kills him in the book, too.
4: There's the scene where Moss and Shigur confront each other for yeah. the first time, yeah. and that was
2: different, at least And then yeah, in the, in the book, Moss runs away, and then the shootout happens between Shigur and the Mexicans. and in the book it, in the movie, it shows Shigur and Moss having a shootout, which doesn't happen.
3: that Anton Sugar made a mistake,
2: and that's coming into a room and Moss having being already ahead of him
3: because Moss had the gun on him, and if he, if, if Moss was Anton Sugar. He, Ma, Anton Sugar would have been dead. Yeah, Moss would have just—he should have—walked, got out of the bed with the shotgun and blown him away. But that was the one time Moss or Anton Sugar made a mistake, and it still didn't benefit yeah. Moss in any way. That's why I appreciate what they did in the book rather than the movie. No, I agree.
2: Yeah, so let's uh, do closing thoughts then.
3: Uh, yeah, I—I uh, had—I had something, and now I can't—I can't think what it was. Uh, anyways, this is uh i've I've always loved Cormac McCarthy. I've been reading him for a number of years now i think the I think I have the crossing somewhere on the desk that I'll be starting immediately after um after this one uh i i don't know i loved it i i i think fondly of the movie as well this is one of the few times I can think of that like this is a this is a great pairing where the movie does does such a beautiful homage to this book that you can really enjoy both of them um and not feel cheated that you're like well they made a movie out of this book. I I think it was I think they did a beautiful job. And um I just I just recommend everybody read as much Cormac McCarthy as they can. But not not for too prolonged periods of time. He can certainly put you in a state of mind that is uh just uh bleak and dark. <laughs> um especially The Road. I recommend The Road's good. I I recommend I recommend Child of God and Outer Dark. Those are two Blood Meridian. Um, I see I haven't read that one yet, but I oh, I, I definitely Coop, will. It's- i can't i can't wait like i said he's he's really fun to read he he's he's really different than anything else on the bookshelves right now that i could think of um and i I, lo- I loved it i hope that i never come across a sugar in my life i can say that
2: with with sincerity uh i will go okay you can go phil oh yeah i'll go yeah i love cormac McCarthy again uh just like coop i've been reading him for years uh I absolutely adore this book it was my introduction to him uh, a number of years ago as well and uh, I just really am in love with his prose as well as his plots but I love the you know his like in some of his other books like Blood Meridian especially uh, present is his like landscape landscape descriptions and his just like command over language I just think is really good and his characterization of you know characters and events are really good so yeah i definitely recommend this and really enjoyed it and have a bunch of mccarthy that i would love to go back through again i want to read the border trilogy which i heard is good i've never read all of those so yeah
4: um i was gonna ask you trick about your um because i've never read blood meridian as well and um i know that's everyone talks about that being like his moby dick or something
2: and so I, w- I was just curious about how this compares to Blood Meridian because I know you've read it. Uh, uh, Blood Meridian is definitely way more heavily literary and less dialogue heavy, like this one. It'd be really hard to make into like a big motion picture movie, like uh, as the same to the same effect that, that No Country for Old Men was as like a blockbuster. Uh, I definitely, I would, if you want to make that comparison, is definitely his Moby Dick. It's very very good very literary but it's also very violent in the same vein as a lot of his other books uh i think it's similar in violence to no country for old men as far as the descriptive nature of violence and like the kind of fucked up things that happen it's
4: on my radar
2: yeah uh philly Um, yeah i had
0: never read uh any mccarthy before this oh awesome Uh, yeah i just heard about it and I, i think you know if there's Anybody listening, we've been you know talking about the movie and saying that you can watch the movie and just listen in on this conversation and I hope that's true. But this book is is really clean and e- e- uh, economical uh Is that a word?
2: Yeah, economical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I suggest you read Blood Meridian, Phil, cuz there's like that's some of his best prose like everybody I you know, totally.
0: Yeah. But I would say uh, I'm, I'm excited to read more McCarthy and, um, you know, glad we talked about this. It's a good one.
4: Cool. Yeah, um, going off of that, actually, um, I have something to end with. Um, like I said in the beginning that my experience reading it this time was a lot different uh, than reading it the first time. Uh for various reasons perhaps. But uh something that was the same both times was I was really struck by the prose of the last um interior monologue or whatever what have you of Bell. Uh when he talks about the dream of his father.
5: Uh-huh. Like yeah, both, both times,
4: yeah, both times I read it, I was just like awestruck by that. Like um what is it? I think he's like riding on a mountain pass next to his father who is like wrapped up in a sheet and is carrying a torch to light a fire somewhere in the distance. Or something like
5: that. Yeah.
4: I don't know. And just a particular way of phrasing. I don't have the book. I only have an electronic copy. I can, read, I can that read that last sentence, sentence if you want, if you want,
5: want
2: to real quick. quick.
4: Go ahead. I mean, it's fantastic. Uh,
2: and in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead and that he was fixing to make a fire somewhere out there and all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he would be there. And then I woke up.
3: Part of that entire passage was the acknowledgement that, like, he was older than his father. Because he talks about, like, Cause he was, I think he's like 57 years old and he was like, I'm, I'm, I'm older than my father was by like 27 years at this point. Um, I mean, that's gotta be, that's gotta be a, a very strange sort of thought to have as somebody, I've never lost a parent, but I'm sure that that has to be a strange sort of uh life event to, to acknowledge and think about. Yeah, absolutely.
4: Like getting older than your parents were when they died. Like that's, that's super creepy. hmm Mm-hmm.
5: mm-hmm.
3: But I don't right, really I care. I gotta who get, get working. Okay, see you, Coop. Like all right, guys. Uh, it was so good to see y'all on talk. Um, I love you guys. It was so okay. good to see ya. See you, Coop. Be-
2: stay
1: relatively yeah. safe. All
2: right. So now we just have j Bone to finish. Yep.
1: Yeah, I I agree with everything that everyone had said about No Country for Old Men. It's incredibly accessible. I I love. I do something I really enjoy about this that one talked about was how the text is interpolated with mosses, not mosses, bells, monologues uh, that help break up the, the pacing. Um, the chapters are usually short enough where it, it transitions into another um, narrative throughout so you never get buried in any one set of events. The you know, language, usually the diction is is really not that uh, arcane or over anyone's head. Uh, Yeah, I think it, it talks a lot about, I think what's really interesting to me in this was sort of finding, thinking about what it is that's so bad about our society now and what we've lost, and we talk about money, and we talk about violence, but to me what this novel really is about is in relation to both of those things is the objectification of man, and that we don't really have any sort of godliness or respect for something godly or something outside of ourselves that we can all agree upon to have a holy quality, holy quality. And I think that what McCarthy or the narrator would say is that uh, that our life itself is that holy thing, and that people here don't really have a respect for that, and that's. Uh, presence mm, present in the in the violence and in the money uh totally and with shigur and with shigur and like shigur sort of embodying like what it is that we're trying to achieve in a, long, a large way is that utilitarian sort of um self motivated uh willful direction and that if that's what we're trying to do each of us in this society I don't know if you want to call it postmodern or modern or what. It's not going to bode well for anyone. And that there has to be something else that we've forgotten along the way that we think is dated or anachronistic that we've sacrificed, which might be some kind of set of morals or some set of values that no longer exist and that I think is present in how people are treated like cattle in this. And that's thats what we have to overcome, I think, is what Bell would say and maybe the narrator and maybe McCarthy. So it's a great novel, a lot of philosophical qualities and uh excellent excellent throws it's it's fucking amazing yeah
2: i'm glad we did it it was a fun read i it was great going back to it
0: we have been referencing a new york times article and the partially examined life article right um so we'll be sure to post that with with this episode so that listeners have a chance to do additional reading or listening if they want
2: right and they're, they're really good both of them uh, they bring up a lot of really good points that you we know, kind of touched on today
0: yeah.
4: If I could give the partially examined life a personal shout out, they—they uh, they are fantastic people. They do fantastic work, and they take stuff that would be goes basically over most most sane people's heads, and they present it in a very, very, very um, agreeable format.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yes, entertaining. Well, and they kind
0: of inspired this uh, this podcast. So
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Shout out. Yeah, waste books. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Waste Books. Um, Next month, we'll be reading Sam Beckett's Watt. W-A-T-T. So, if you're so inclined, start reading on that, and we'll see you next time. Uh, today's music is by producer Piecemeal, based out of Billings. Uh, you can find a video that goes with this song, along with lots of other art, at waste waste-division.org. waste-division.org. We also have... Uh, t-shirts and stickers for sale uh, online and at shops around Montana and Oregon if you'd like to help us out with operating costs as we work to support small artists across the country and around the world from New York City to Eugene, Oregon to Bangkok, Thailand Um, also helpful if you want to be a patron on Podbean You can find a link to that and maybe pitch $1 for an episode if you like what we do and like reading along um, and think it's worthwhile. In the meantime, waste away!